it goes back to the mystique of neurosurgery. Neurosurgery attracts a lot of people simply because of that mystique. Our job is to pick out the people that have the professionalism versus the people that don't have the professionalism. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. We're live. Great. Today uh, we're recording maybe the most important podcast that we're uh, we're going to be doing this year. And uh, my guest today is uh, Dr. Stephen Giannata. Uh, he's the chair of neurosurgery at University of Southern California, where I did my residency. Uh, he helped to train me, and almost all the great things I learned in surgery, I learned from him. Uh, Dr. G, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, we're putting you on the spot a little bit today, and let me just give a little background to our listeners. Um, doc, Dr. G, you served on the NS Professional Conduct Committee for a decade or so? or I know it was over six years, but yeah, don't hold me exactly to that, but... I spent a lot of time on the Professional Conduct Committee. That's yeah. correct. And we'd love to hear about that and what you did in generalities because I don't think most people who, even neurosurgeons, understand what that really means and, and what we do as neurosurgeons to ensure high quality across the board in America. But but the reason we're, we're doing this podcast, and this is really, I call this the response to Dr. Death, and there's a podcast out there that is the number one downloaded podcast about neurosurgery, and it's been downloaded millions of times. And it's about uh, a neurosurgeon that had a bunch of issues and uh, is now currently in prison. And just by way of disclaimer, nothing that we're talking about reflects our personal knowledge of this individual, the content of the podcast, the journalism, or any of the commentary related to the legalities of that. We're talking about, you know, as neurosurgeons, we... We hear this from our patients, right? We hear that people say, hey, I heard this podcast about neurosurgery. And, and you know, the other 6,000 neurosurgeons, like, like we're being identified to some degree in this way, which, which I think is anathema. So let me start by just asking Dr. G about, about the profession. And you're no longer on the professional conduct committee, so you're not representing them officially, right? We're just talking about your time with them, right? So tell us about what that is. Well, the professional conduct committee actually got started... Uh, at the in, in the AANS as a response to medical legal issues, and uh, it allowed uh, members of the American Association of Neurological Surgeons to lodge a complaint against another member of the American uh, Association of Neurological Surgeons, who they thought were acting unprofessionally. And for the most part, uh, I was involved in the startup of the professionalism committee, and for the most part, that unprofessionalism was related to what was perceived as erroneous testimony in medical malpractice cases. I see. There were a few other cases uh, where, uh, interestingly enough, someone would lodge a complaint about, um, about say, uh, research fraud or falsification, something like that. But most of it involved uh, medical legal. Um, very rarely did we ever get a complaint about uh, what I think we're going to talk about now, which is basically um, 
and sociopathic behavior because that is ex extremely rare in our specialty and maybe we'll talk about why that is so rare and why this doctor death thing made such a big splash. Yeah, and just on that professional conduct committee with the double NS, does it have teeth? I mean, like, I mean, you, you people sit around and say, okay, well, okay, you're guilty or you did something wrong. What's, what's the punishment? Uh, the punishments can range from a letter of reprimand all the way to expulsion from the society. Which has what material effect? No material effect uh, except that if, let's say, you make a portion of your living by giving expert testimony, remember what one of the first questions the opposing lawyer will always ask you, and that is, what is your standing with your professional societies? Have you ever been thrown off a medical staff or kicked out of your medical society or uh, been put on... Uh, probation or something like that. So you have to admit that, and that may, that may uh, taint your credibility as a witness. But So if I can just explain it for the readers and correct me if I'm wrong here, that we as uh, neurosurgeons or as a society or as an organization really don't have any material ability to say, okay, I don't like what that person's doing or that person's, what they're doing is wrong, and I can actually stop them, right? I mean, that, that happens in another sphere, whether it's legal or criminal or or something else, right? I mean, it's not part of what we do, for it's better not, or worse. It's not, because most uh, medical practice is governed by state laws and state uh, uh, medical um, uh, societies and so forth. So they're the only ones that really have the ability <clears throat> to stop somebody from practicing. Now, as we also know, uh, you can be you can be restricted from practicing at your local hospitals, and that's important to neurosurgeons who make their living in the inpatient sphere. So that's another um, way of getting discipline, but our professional societies really don't have a way to stop somebody from practicing medicine. Yeah, because most patients, right, <laughs> JP, like, that's what they think. They're like, why didn't you guys do, like, first of all, who are we, and which we we talking about, and what can, what can, really, can we do something like it's like a citizen's arrest, right? We don't even have that ability, right? You can't just say, stop, right? We don't, really don't have that, right? No, and if you listen to what happened to this particular physician, uh, he would um, lose his privileges at a given hospital and then go five miles down the road and get mm -hmm. privileges from another hospital. And the reason, of course, for that is, is the contribution margin of neurosurgical practice to most hospitals is huge on a per capita, per surgeon, per doctor basis. So our 6,500 hospitals in the country want one of those 5,000 neurosurgeons practicing at their hospital. Right, right, right. So let's dive deeper into sort of the mechanics of, of this situation that did occur. And you had mentioned something that is, is fascinating to me, which is that, you know, I mean, I, I probably personally know a thousand neurosurgeons, and I've never encountered something quite like this, or at least as it's described. Like, I don't really know what happened, but it's, it's alleged. All these things are alleged, and some of them prove them in court of law. But wh why do you think it is rare? Like, if you just, if you just took a population of, of, uh, of, of Americans, out of 100 people, I'm guessing one or two are real sociopaths, and they're usually in prison or in and out of prison. Wh why do you think it's so rare in our field? It's rare because of the fine filter that we put people like JP through to become that profession that has so much mystique associated with it. Think about the professions that have mystique. 
I mean, there's jokes about it. You know, this isn't rocket science. This isn't brain surgery, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that fine filter. That fine filter now, um, if you don't count medical school, is seven years long. Mm-hmm. So you're functioning in a very closed, very restricted society, which is a neurosurgical residency training program, which by definition only has, uh, on average, 14 people in it, right? Right. About 110 neurosurgical training programs. Some have one resident per year. Some have one and a half. Some have blah, 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 blah. The average ends up being two. Right. Two times seven, 14. You've got 13 peers who, with whom you live, work, function, party, and so forth for seven years. Mm-hmm. And if they can't tell your personality, your ethics, uh, your work ethic, your professionalism, by then they'll never be able to tell it. And that's why there is a, uh, a, a, a finite um, um, rate of, of people leaving training programs because they don't adhere or they can't, they can't uh, perform uh, in a way that's acceptable to the training program directors and the chairman of the department. I love that you say that because we just had a situation with a sub-I, and, and for those who listen to this podcast, they know what a sub, sub-intern is or sub-I. They're medical students that are doing a rotation away from their medical school, kind of like a one-month interview, right? They're on service working as a medical student. And, and uh, without going into details, the, the bottom line is that this medical student was involved in a situation where the patient felt uncomfortable and uh, risk management got involved, Right. This is going to have major implications, potentially, it's certainly at our institution, for this individual. And that was, that was a very mild thing that happened, I think. But already people are like, whoa, like this is not a good fit, right? Is that, that's what you're talking about, right? Exactly. Only remember, remember where we are. We're in, we're in the you know, Me Too era, so those kinds of things get magnified. Uh, what, what we're really talking about is is a, a real lack of professionalism. Remember, um, a book was written uh, about uh, surgical residencies back in the 80s, uh, where uh, a, a, an embedded reporter spent time on a surgical rotation in one of the New York training programs. The book was called Forgive and Remember, and he identified the fact that the most common way to flunk out of a procedural-based residency, namely a surgical residency, was lack of veracity. People mm-hmm. who could not or did not or would not under certain circumstances tell the truth. Really? And this was uh, picked up, and we've seen this before, Mike, in your training program, yeah, well, yes. our training program, right. where the resident, in an effort to ingratiate himself or herself to the attending, will tell the attending some good news when in actuality it's bad news. So people tend to tell the attending what he or she wants to hear. And we have had several people in our training program move on, go do something else based on that kind of lack of professionalism. Yeah, that's what they say, right? They say that the one thing you can't do is lie about, not not white lies, but lie about the patient's condition or data, right? Because people, I mean, patients die based on that information, right? The transfer of information. Uh, uh, Or mistransfer. My youngest daughter, Robin, who you know, 
um, was in college and she had a bunch of roommates and uh, she mentioned to me one night at dinner, she said, Dad, you know, my roommate girlfriend wants to go into medicine. I said, I said, Rob, you need to have her come and talk to me. I'd be happy to talk to right. her. And she said, oh, Dad, she could never become a doctor. She can't tell the truth. Oh, oh wow. Now, my daughter, which I'm <laughs> proud of, equated telling the truth with being a physician. Yeah. So you're right, Mike. <laughs> what's our most, uh, what's our most uh, valued trait? It's that we got to be able to be honest. Yeah. Well, do, you, do you think that beyond this natural human tendency, the fearing of speaking truth to power, which you see in people and in many professions, <clears throat> which maybe you can train or beat out of a person, but do you think beyond that a more deep moral level of honesty, do you think that can be taught? Uh, that's an excellent question. I don't think it necessarily can be taught. I think certain aspects of professionalism can be modeled. That's all we mm. can hope for in the context of a neurosurgery residency training program. I mean, if, if, when you're in your 20s or approaching 30, if your mom and dad didn't instill that in you, it's too late for for us as as training program personnel to do that, right? right? Our job is to pick out the people that have the professionalism versus the people that don't have the professionalism. And that's why we were discussing this at the Society of Neurological Surgeons meeting where uh, the, the issue came up about letters of recommendation yes. that are sent out about people right. and how accurate and uh, how discernible the message is that's embedded in that letter can be to the person receiving that letter. Uh, and back to, uh, to your comment uh, um, about speaking to authority, uh, another body that watches over this sort of thing is the ACGME, mm. the uh, uh, Council for Graduate Medical Education. One of their, one of their uh, stock questions that they send to all residents of all training programs is, uh, can you say something to your attendants without fear of retaliation? And you can lose your training program if your residents check that wrong box more than a couple of times. I got to tell you, you know, we're very honest on this podcast and people know me know I'm a little bit of a nut, but I hate that crap. I hate all this like, like we were talking about it, that patients always ask me in the morning, like, Dr. Wayne, did you get good night's rest? And I always say the exact same thing. I say, if you have to ask me that question and you really are, I know you're just being social, then you picked the wrong doctor. Like, like... You know, in some ways, like, you can put all these barriers up, like timeouts and all this, but if the surgeon doesn't care enough, for, in our field, I'm not talking about other fields of medicine, it's a crapshoot, right? I mean, like, like you taught me that. Like, you're, you're always prepared. You can never have a bad day. It doesn't matter how what's going on, right? I mean, isn't that what the standard we should have? Forget about these other, you know, bean counters and, and social scientists. I mean, if your neurosurgeon does not care enough, figure this stuff out. You, you're, you're like in treacherous waters. Well, that's part of the fine filter of the neurosurgery residency training program. And seven years of a surgical subspecialty for which there are very few surrounding resources that are set up to help you. Think about cardiac surgery. Uh, cardiac surgeon walks out of that OR, the rest of that patient's hospital course is taken care of by 
not cardiac surgeon. Right, right, right. That's right. Who, Mike, who wanted to help you at Los Angeles County General Hospital after your RB was done at 2 a.m.? Nobody. Nobody. We did it. You yeah. did it, all right? That's part of the fine filter I'm talking about. It, and and it's, it, it goes back to the mystique of neurosurgery. Neurosurgery attracts a lot of people simply because of that mystique who really have no capacity to function as professionally as we we yeah, do now. Last night we were going through that. I mean, everybody comes up to me, and and I, I love John Adler, what he was saying about, you know, everybody says they're an inventor, but how many make it? I'm going to discourage you. People come to me every day. They say, Mike Wang's an asshole because, you know what, I said I want to be a neurosurgeon. He said to me something like this, everybody wants to be a neurosurgeon. If you just want the title, everybody wants to be a Navy SEAL, astronaut, just put the patch on, right? But can you do it? I mean, that's the question, right? It's not, it's, I mean, we can destroy our field trying to give people the title of neurosurgeon that can't be neurosurgeons, right? Or we could kill a lot of patients, I guess. That's, so then it goes back to your issue about sub-eyes and what their performance is on a, on a, on a, on a, in a training program that they're visiting and what letters of recommendation are um, a result from that experience and how, how do we interpret those letters when we're getting them to rank our you know, acceptance right. class, right? And that's why that's, this came up at the Senior Society. Now, frankly, society, our society is getting away from letters of recommendation because, and this didn't come up in any of the podcasts uh, about Dr. Death, uh, they wanted to impugn the hospitals and the medical system, right. and no one said anything about attorneys' roles in all this, right. all right? Um, uh, I have a very close friend who is a CEO of several uh, corporations in the Los Angeles area, and her business insurance people told her not to write letters of recommendation for any of her employees, whether they were good letters of recommendation or bad letters of recommendation, because of the liability she could lose her company by being sued about what you would say about an employee. Explain that a little deeper, because that, that strikes me as something non-intuitive. Non-intuitive. Right. So for our listeners, like what, what, is, what does that really mean? What are they really saying to her? They're, they're saying to her that if, if you write anything other than a glowing letter of recommendation, you will be potentially sued by the applicant for restraint of trade or whatever yeah. the legalities of it are, enough so that Either your business insurance rates will go up or you won't have business insurance. Wow. And if you lose the lawsuit, and California is a classic example of this, you could, you, the, the penalties can be such that you have to close your company down. Now, well, what about the great letter of recommendation? Well, that's what we're talking about at the Senior Society. You write a great letter of recommendation for somebody who's got professional issues uh, uh, and can't tell the truth, then you get a Dr. Death kind of a situation, right? You've, yeah. you've let somebody into our, our fraternity and sorority that doesn't belong there because of ethics. Right. And it's, it's on you as the letter writer for not conveying the appropriate message. So when I listened to the podcast, I listened to it straight through all six episodes, I became very depressed. I was, I was like, it put me in a state of hell for a number of weeks and I was moping around because I was like, I knew what this really meant, which, and we, you know, we kind of knew that there was the possibility of this kind of stuff. 
But then, then it occurred to me what I was really worried about was that I was thinking that you know we're, we're like a priest class and we're this is like the priest that molests you know the, the, the altar boy and so our whole profession is being questioned now. So for the for a practical person, so you, you have a patient out there who has a brain tumor, okay? They're going to get a surgery to remove it, right? What does a patient do, like at a practical level, to navigate to avoid Dr. Death? I mean, I don't, I don't know that there are any out there now, but like, what would a patient do to, to have assurance to say, okay, I listened to your podcast and, and I took these measures to try to ensure that I'm in the right hands? Well, the only thing a patient can do is make sure that that they do some investigation of their the doctor that they're referred to, any specialist, whether it's a neurosurgeon or not. You've got to take matters into your own hands. That that was made very apparent on this podcast. But, well, let's let's be clear. We're not talking about rate MDs, vitals, or Google because those are bought. Like the I tell people, if you've got a spine surgeon with five stars, that's either a surgeon that didn't operate or that's bought. So mm-hmm. so what what I do is I allow my patients potential patients to contact my previous patients. Really? I do. It's allowed in HIPAA and all that? Oh, oh, absolutely. Okay. Because, don't forget, in order for me to do that, I have to get the permission of the patient as they walk out the door. Yeah, that's right? true. Yeah. And of course, Dawn brokers the whole thing. Oh, she yeah, puts Dawn's beautiful. My yeah. PA, of course. She puts these people together because she knows that it's going to make the potential patient a lot more comfortable if... That patient can talk to a previous patient who hopefully had a good experience. I love Dawn. For those guys not from USC, so Dawn Fishback was, well, she was like Miss, uh, Miss, um, what's the bowl game there? Rose Bowl or something like that, yeah, right? right? Beautiful young lady who had an acoustic neuroma, right? Yes. That you removed, and she became your PA. And so we would consent people, I remember as a resident, we'd consent people for surgery for you, and they'd be like, well, what's the scar going to look like? And Dawn would just kind of pull up her hair, and she's beautiful, and show the scar. And people were like, okay, I feel wow. better now because maybe I'll look like her when we're done, right? <laughs> so, Probably not. <laughs> so just to be clear, uh, this Christopher Dunge character, he was not board certified, right? <clears throat> he, so that brings up another issue because you, you asked about, you know, what can the American Association of Neurological Surgeons do about professionals? Well, and we just, we decided not much. Mm-hmm. But there's another body that does watch over it a little more carefully, and that's the American Board of Neurological Surgery, which I was chairman of back around 2000. Right. And when I was chairman of the board, we just started to do something like what the professionalism committee was doing. We would accept complaints about our board-certified neurosurgeons, and we found a couple of people in that process who got sideways of the law, Um, you know, carrying a gun illegally, usually um, uh, uh, impaired physician, alcoholism, drugs, and there was a couple of them, a handful of them, and they would would, uh, be brought before, in effect, a tribunal of the American board and they may get a, uh, a suspension of their board certification. And our board, our old board members did, said, no, 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 no. You, you, once you get your board certification, you got it for life no matter what you do. And some of our more progressive people said, uh, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like a professional organization. And so I presided over the first uh, couple of, of, uh, uh, of these uh, proceedings uh, and we did unearth, uh, around the country, unearth a couple of people, not to the level of Dr. Dunch, but certainly people who were, uh, for whatever reason, usually 
due to some impairment, not acting professionally on the job. But again, the board doesn't have real teeth either, right? You can still practice medicine and not be board certified. You can practice medicine and not be board certified, but uh, uh, we also figured out a way to get around some restrictions that limited information between the 50 states. Uh, so we worked through the AMA, and they worked through all of the state you know, medical societies that gave you your license to practice medicine. Mm-hmm. So at least if somebody got sus- got their board certification suspended for, let's say, six months, all of the state boards around the country knew about it. So I, I think something we keep coming back to is the power of the spoken word and the truth of our words. Be it Dr. Giannata, I saw the patient, uh, Dr. Wang, I changed that dressing, the smallest little thing. So in summary, Dr. Giannata, for the people listening to this who listen to the Dr. Death podcast, be they professionals in or connected to our field, be they patients or potential patients, family members, what would you say to them, someone who's heard that podcast, listened to this conversation, um, what should they take away from the phenomenon of Dr. Dunch? As a subspecialty of medicine, neurosurgeons adhere to the highest standards, and as a percentage of participants in that subspecialty, I would say that because of what we've discussed here, because of the fine filter they go through, because of the seven years, because of the oversight, because of the um, attrition rate for those that don't measure up, uh, neurosurgery has at least the highest standards of any other surgical subspecialty, if not the highest. That's great. That's great. Well, we're going to have to have you back on again to talk about something a little more fun, maybe uh, <laughs> racing motorcycles or you know driving fast cars. Uh, but thank you for your service to the AANS, and, and it's really been a pleasure, Dr. G. Thank you, guys. Thank you, sir.